hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. And now, a message from Bob Ross. Okay. Now then, today, shoot, let's get crazy. Let's get crazy. We're going to check out your nerves today. See if you're brave. So it sounds like Bob is saying that it's the Lonely Palette's year-end Patreon fundraiser. And if we hit our goal, you can expect an episode on Bob Ross himself early next year. Bob Ross. Bob Ross. Go to patreon.com slash lonelypalette or anywhere on the Lonely Palette website for more information. www.thelonelypalette.com Check out your nerves. Be brave. Support the Lonely Palette. Don't be afraid of it. Do it. We don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents. And if yours doesn't come out looking exactly like this, that means it's better. It's better. This picture is called Steamboat on the Fjord, but also Midnight Sun in Raftsuna. In the middle ground, we see small houses, and by the brew, open small and bigger fishing boats and sailboats to tell us about everyday life in a small fishing village up north. And in front, the steamboat to represent the modern and prosperous times to come. In the background, the steep mountains with fair weather skies around them and the midnight sun glowing in the middle. The colors are radiant red and glowing orange like we could experience them on a summer's night here in the northern part of Norway. In good weather, that is. It's like magic, my pupils and students say. No wonder many of them find this picture to be the one they like best of the many they have seen from the artist. So do I. We could even understand his critics at the time from the southern part of Norway who hadn't actually seen the Midnight Sun. They criticized him for using colors that were exaggerated and unrealistic. But we know they aren't. And I say like the late singer from Buda, Tarja Nilsson, you must have been there to understand. This is The Lonely Palette, the podcast that returns art history to the masses, one object at a time. I'm Tamara Vishai. Episode 61, Under the Midnight Sun. A few years ago, the Museum of Fine Arts Boston mounted a really big landmark show, like all the galleries in their newly renovated exhibition space. And all this fanfare was for an American artist named William Merritt Chase. You've heard of him, right? No? Yeah, neither had I. Neither had most people. Okay, maybe if you'd happen to be an expert in American Impressionism and early 20th century American painting, you'd have seen his name. Maybe. 
But what I realized, attending this show, is that I had seen his work, just not necessarily by him, even though that hand of his was exceptionally gifted. I hadn't necessarily seen his own work, but I'd seen him in the work of so many other painters that I had heard of. George Bellows and Georgia O'Keeffe and Joseph Stella. Why? Because he was their teacher. There's a perfectly noxious truism that those who can do and those who can't teach. And okay, I'm not going to say that this never happens. But the worst part of thinking this way is that it completely undermines the unique skill that it takes to be a teacher, at least a good teacher. In fact, the skill of being a teacher is often at odds with the skill of being an artist in the first place. Honestly, I've never met a those who can't who can teach. Because good teachers have learned to set aside their own ego, to allow their prodigious skills to be reflected in the work of their students while they just kind of disappear. And it makes me think about episode 31, when I extolled my undying love of that C.S. Lewis quote about how he knows there's a God, like he knows that the sun has risen, not because Lewis sees the sun, but because by that sun he sees everything else. And I think that there's an equivalent there to good teachers. You don't necessarily know the impact of an artist like William Merritt Chase just because of his own rich, buttery brushstrokes or his perfect streaks of light or his empathic sitters who are so beautifully finished and unfinished. But because by those things, you see what underlies the skills of some of the most famous American artists in the early 20th century. So today, let's redirect the sun lamp. Let's explore the teacher for once. And not just the William Merritt Chases of the world who actually got those whole gallery exhibitions at world-class museums, eventually. There are plenty of teachers who are even quieter, who stand in the oversized shadows of their much, much more famous students and acolytes who are known simply through them. Did you know, for example, that Edvard Munch, Norway's most famous artist, had a cheerleader, a champion, who also happened to be an extraordinarily gifted teacher for artists throughout Norway and Germany? Now you do. And his name was Edelston Norman. And paintings by Norman, they just feel familiar, even if his name isn't. They're largely monumental canvases of beautiful, realistic landscapes of the waterways, steep mountains, and fjords that characterized his island hometown, just outside of what is now Buda. Imagine in Norman a kind of Norwegian Albert Bierstadt, or Thomas Cole, an artist who loves a place so deeply that he just wants to paint it again and again, both as it is in reality, every rock and ripple, and as it is in the mind of someone who loves it. Norman's paintings of Buddha, even if you've never heard of Buddha, just make you feel like you're there, sitting on a dock in the early morning mist, the water lapping beneath your feet. 
Buda is a 539-square-mile Norwegian municipality with a population of around 53,000, located just north of the Arctic Circle, meaning that from June 1st to July 13th, there's an average of 24 hours of daylight. That is the presence of what is colloquially known as the midnight sun. So much has been written about these distinctive, haunting Scandinavian skies, their beauty and their psychic disruption, from Stephen Sondheim's A Little Night Music to that Christopher Nolan movie with Robin Williams about insomnia to a truly weird Billy Joel song. But capturing these skies is another story. What does the sky become when the sun never completely sets? It's like it never fully goes to sleep. Instead, it sits in this eternal warmth, where the deep pink of a sunset merges with the orange of a sunrise. And you can imagine, as so many have, what that lack of sleep does to your head day after day. It's not such a surprise that the most famous Scandinavian painting is Munch's The Scream, where the red and orange and blue streaks in the sky undulate and swirl, where sky and water and landscape morph into one another, like it's all reflected in a warped piece of glass, and where our central figure holds his skull-like face in a primal scream. This is a painting about psychological torment, what Munch describes as, quote, an infinite scream passing through nature, and what modern scholars have described as, quote, the universal anxiety of modern humanity. And given how iconic this painting is, we tend to lose sight of how disturbing it is. I mean, it was the model for the ghost face mask in the Scream movies, for God's sake. It's meant to tap into something that is really primally unsettling. And while I should, of course, clarify that the scream was meant to take place in Oslo, which is considerably south of Buda, and that Munch was more interested in describing the anxiety of modernity on the psyche than the effects of the midnight sun and its counterpart early darkness in the winter. The reason that I'm conflating the two is because the background of the scream is largely what this anomalous Norwegian sky and its psychological angst has been to the rest of the world. Too much light, too much darkness, the colors too unnaturally bloody, the circadian rhythms of anyone who visits blown unrepentantly to smithereens. And this is quite a reputation to overcome. Just ask anybody from the area. Because most people who live beneath the midnight sun are far less tortured than Edvard Munch. And Edelstein Norman surely was one of those people. He was born in Buda in 1848, the son of a prosperous tradesman who focused on the fishing industry. And therefore, little Edelstein was well acquainted with the docks and ports of his coastal home, a little boy among the ships, the rigging in the smokestacks, the mountains framing the coast, the quality of the changing light throughout the day. And he loved to draw early on. He always had a sketchbook in his hand. And he actually turned down the family business after his father died to pursue art in Germany, where he ended up staying for the rest of his life, first in Dusseldorf and then in Berlin. But no matter how far flung he was, Buddha was always deeply in his heart. His daughter was fond of saying that if he blindfolded him, he could still always point in Buddha's direction. 
and hold on to this particular finger point and this larger idea of nostalgia because we'll come back to it. It was while Norman was in Berlin later in his life that, in 1892, he, on behalf of the Union of Berlin Artists, invited an irascible young upstart named Edvard Munch to exhibit in the society's first-ever one-man show. And this is where the paths cross, between the artist you've heard of and the teacher you haven't. Although Norman was enormously well-established at this point in his career, he was a sought-after, nurturing painter of highly admired and very profitable paintings across the gamut of prestige. His work was purchased by hotels and other like-minded institutions who valued both their beauty and the specificity of their place. I mean, even today, Norman is credited with helping create the Norwegian tourist industry. His paintings were exhibited across the continent and were even adored by the German emperor Kaiser Wilhelm II, who bought a number of them. Munch, meanwhile, had been a bit of a failure, tramping between Oslo and Paris, continually experimenting and therefore struggling to gain a foothold in the European art establishment. His brushstroke, his palette, and his technique ranged widely as he was experimenting with naturalism and the avant-garde, a curious mix of impressionism, pointillism, and what would ultimately become the symbolist brand of expressionism that would make him famous. So when Norman reached out to Munch, it was pretty shocking to the younger painter to have someone so representative of the establishment pay him this kind of attention, and to offer him this kind of opportunity, and to do it so flatteringly. Quote, May I therefore take the liberty of asking you, Norman wrote, if you have not already made any previous arrangements about your pictures, whether you would be willing to show them in Berlin, and under what conditions. Yeah, remember how kindly he was asked by this member of the establishment when we get to what happened. Although, I will say that kindness really is the operative word here. Because Norman just seems throughout this story like a really solid dude, bringing Munch into his circle and basically anticipating that this younger artist would be accepted, no matter how ill-prepared Munch was for how ill-prepared Berlin society was for his work. You can see this nurturing teacher come through, even with a young person who wasn't his direct student. Quote, Edelston Norman is very friendly, Munch wrote in a letter to his aunt. A few days ago, he took me to an artist's get-together. In the same letter, he quickly gets to the point, which is basically that he expects to be accepted by the art establishment and needs his aunt to send him a cheap frock coat as soon as possible, quote, because they mind a lot about the correct clothes here, and it's reasonable to expect that I shall be invited to parties once the exhibition opens. It turns out she didn't need to rush that coat. Because the exhibition did open on November 5th, 1892, and just imagine the night before, Munch walking around the quiet hall of mounted paintings, paintbrush in hand, just him and his work and his excitement, making final strokes and subtle dabs, the faint smell of linseed oil in the air. And then it's the next night, the night of. The doors open, and the Berlin art scene comes pouring in. 
And then the meteor hits. Art is in danger, according to the Frankfurter Zeitung, hysterically on November 9th. Quote, all true believers to raise a great lament, call forth the rescue squads to battle against that Nordic dauber and poisoner of art, Edvard Munch, an impressionist and a mad one at that, has broken into our herd of fine, solidly bourgeoisie artists, end quote. Another critic, meanwhile, both helpfully and condescendingly drew attention to Munch's birthplace, writing that the artist had, quote, stirred a storm in Berlin compared to which the Norwegian snows were merely a little local piece of weather, end quote. And you can feel bad for Munch, of course, but don't feel too bad. This veritable storm, which forced the exhibition to close within a week, and has been christened by a history as the Munch Affair, was essentially what launched his career, and is the reason why he, and not anyone else from that herd of fine, solidly bourgeoisie artists, is the only Norwegian painter that you've ever heard of. To his credit, even Munch seemed to realize this at the time writing back to his aunt that the show closure, far from destroying him, was, quote, the best thing that could have happened to him, a better advertisement he couldn't have wished for. I mean, he painted the scream a year later. He wasn't wrong. But where did this whole kerfuffle leave Norman? To his immense credit, I think, their relationship stayed really friendly, probably because the older Norman, more wisdom than ego at that stage in his life, admired the younger Munch so damn much. Where the critics and artists of Norman's generation were scandalized, Norman himself seemed as impressed as ever with Munch's fierce independence and willingness to experiment with the craft, the very traits that led Norman to invite Munch to Berlin in the first place. I mean, Norman was no dummy. A respectable, card-carrying member of the Berlin art scene, he had to have known that he was courting controversy by inviting Munch at all. And the argument has even been made that Norman was intentionally trying to split the art scene in two, to suss out the avant-garde artists and critics from their fuddy-duddy establishment brethren. And if this is the case, it speaks to some truly impressive and even progressive foresight. But even if Norman's move to invite Munk wasn't as calculated as all that, it did line up with the kind of emergent modernist sensibilities that Norman was starting to use in his work. Modern both aesthetically and intellectually. The aesthetics were new, but the intellect might have always been there. I know, he doesn't seem like that modern of a painter. So let's take these elements, the aesthetic and the intellectual, one at a time. In terms of Norman's newfound modernist aesthetics, it's extraordinary how quickly you start to see modern painting techniques in his work once Munch came into his life. Norman's painting, Friedrichstrasse After the Rain from 1893, right after the Munch affair and their budding friendship, is incredible evidence of Munch's influence setting free Norman's tight, realistic style, at least for a little while. Some have even questioned if Munch painted it himself, or at the very least, helped. The loose brushstrokes, the glistening lights reflected on the shining streets, a story told with just enough detail. 
Norman's trademark heroic seascapes of Buda and Greater Nordland were always deeply recognizable and realistic. People can often identify a mountain that's close to their summer home or some sort of childhood memory linked to this or that fjord. But Friedrichstrasse after the rain is a whole different kind of realistic. It brings you into the scene with all your senses. You can feel the dampness. You can smell the puddles. The 19th century modernist technique of inviting you to step foot into the frame, to breach the barrier between you and the ages, is fully embraced here, with visible, sketchy brushstrokes that must have both pained and thrilled the establishment Norman in equal measure. But this walk on the aesthetic modernist wild side didn't last very long. And soon enough, Norman's brushstrokes tightened back up. So I think it's interesting, too, to consider what makes a painting truly modern beyond just the painting technique. I mean, okay, we've already talked about how modern the scream is. It's not just a painting that employs modern techniques, those swirly, expressive, unfinished brushstrokes and phantasmagoric color palette and a jarring perspectival composition. It's also a painting about modernity, how the speed of technology and its subsequent urban anxiety will fundamentally knock you off your nut. But I put forth that the much gentler, warmer, softer paintings by Norman like steamboat on the fjords in the midnight sun, are pretty darn modern too. And for two reasons. First, because Norman went out of his way to incorporate that steamboat, which was a real attempt to keep pace with the world that was modernizing his own childhood home. This folding in of a technological element into nature is so similar to the beauty with which Monet's exhaust from the modern city plumes into his swirling skies, like we see in his painting The Gare Saint-Lazare, Arrival of a Train, from 1877, where the same painting techniques that so beautifully and ethereally capture sunlight and poppy fields are given over to smoke and steam. My point is that Norman, even in middle age and beyond, wasn't averse to allowing his landscapes to change as the world did. And this actually brings me to the second element of modernity that his paintings embraced. Subjectivity. It's easy to look at a landscape that is so detailed and precise and imagine that it's a photograph taken from a drone, that it's objective, that it hasn't passed through the filter of the imagination of someone who deeply loves it, someone who is formed by those fjords, who remembers them as much as renders them. Granted, it is to Norman's credit that he allows a steamship to invade his childhood memories, but they are still his memories. And that means that there's something very modern going on here the way that his nostalgia softens the painting's gaze. Not unlike how portraits painted by peak modernist painters like Vincent van Gogh and Frida Kahlo are always kind of a little bit self-portraits. They never claim to paint their postmen or their maids exactly as they were in reality, but as they were to them. And this is how Norman paints Buddha 
which ironically makes these paintings all the more relatable to anyone from Buddha and all the more appealing to someone who's never been there. This is what happens when a beautiful painter is also a teacher. There's been this current running beneath this episode, or maybe it's a glow coming from above, the light by which you see everything else. Because maybe we can say that Edelston Norman was like the midnight sun himself. You can see how his warmth illuminated others without spite or competition. I mean, Norman really wanted to give Munch this platform that would end up entirely eclipsing, for lack of a better word, whatever legacy as a Norwegian artist of note that Norman figured he had. And you can see, too, how the sunlight of his paintings illuminates his home, a town that can exist in both a sentimental memory and the reality of progress. And when someone is a painter who both does and teaches, you really can see how the teaching affects the doing. That he could dabble in something new and then return to his roots, and notably without the psychological torment that plagued Munch, the artist who didn't teach, he only did. And people did actually respond to Norman's work, repetitive and specific and somewhat passé though his motifs may have been. His paintings are scattered around Europe and the United States in world-class collections. They were considered worth stealing by Nazis. And most spectacularly, one of his paintings of a Norwegian fishing village was found in Michael Jackson's Neverland estate when it was being disassembled. And, get this, was valued as the most expensive object in his collection. I mean, if one person is going to pay attention to you for basically the entire 20th century, it might as well be the king of pop. But the midnight sun himself did set, like many others before their time, in 1918, when Norman died of the Spanish flu at age 70. Not nearly as many people had heard of him as should have. And, yeah, almost no one has heard of him today. But now you have. So take this new name. Seek out his work. Bask in his warmth. And appreciate the talent that it takes to do. And, if you're good enough, to teach. This episode was produced in partnership with Buddha 2024, the European capital of culture. And special thanks to Marie Per and especially Anne-Grette Ellingsen from the Edelston Norman Society for her descriptions at the top of the episode. Thank you also, as always, to Debbie Bleacher for her production help. For more information, past episodes, and all the bloody-skied images of urban anxiety and gentle lapping fjords, go to thelonelypalette.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Lonely Palette, or on Instagram, at The Lonely Palette. Like us on Facebook, and if you're so inclined, 
send new listeners our way by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. And as Bob Ross helpfully reminded you at the top, we are in the creamy middle of our year-end Patreon listener challenge. And if we meet our goal, you'll get a shiny new episode on Bob Ross coming your way next year, as well as some incredible giveaways and new Patreon perks, all of which you can check out at patreon.com slash lonelypalette. The Lonely Palette is a proud founding member of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective. And speaking of podcasts that are surprisingly familiar if you're a fan of The Lonely Palette, check out episode 1.2 of Lori Mortimer's Mementos. The episode is called A T-Shirt Hug from Dad. And if you listen to the episode that we released a year ago with the podcast Hi-Fi Nation, you might recognize Karen Krolak, who tells her story as beautifully with Lori as she did with me. That's mementospodcast.com or hubspokeaudio.org or wherever you get your podcasts.